Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my privilege to have as my guest Amos Smith. Amos has been a pastor. He's been involved with the Quakers or the Religious Society of Friends since he was in college, and he's the author of several important books on spiritual formation, including his latest, Journey of Holistic Mysticism, Experiencing the Integrated Spirituality of the Quakers. Uh, Amos has a real gift. This conversation is going to go down as one of my favorite ones because Amos has spent enough time in silence and solitude. He's literally done centering prayer for thousands of hours, and he sat on multiple 10-day silent retreats. And what I found one of his gifts to be is he's able to articulate and describe the inner world with really clear language and illustrations that give you know persons like myself who are really essentially just neophytes in contemplative spirituality um, some targets to think about on our own spiritual journeys. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I'm super grateful for Amos's time, and so let's jump right into the conversation that I had with him a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast, Amos. It's uh, great to have you here today. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. I, I really appreciate your work, and uh, it's good to be on the podcast. Thank you. And can can you share, uh, again, I guess briefly, but can you lay out some of the key moments in your life and spiritual journey that uh, you know led you to the present time? You know, you've had lots of different ministry experiences, but you're about to release a new book, uh, The Journey of Holistic Mysticism, Experiencing the Integrated Spirituality of the Quakers. Some um, you kind of guide us to what's kind of brought you to this point in your um, your spiritual and um, uh, and spiritual life and your ministry. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Uh, so I started out as a mountain climber, and I would be on high mountain vistas in the Shenandoah Mountains. And up on those vistas, I would have this distinct feeling that I was part of something much larger than myself. And it was something that I that was in my bones. I, I just couldn't shake it. I, I just felt, uh, you know, that I'm I'm part of something that is vast and mysterious, and that is ancient. And that has, uh, you know, sewed me together uh, over the millennia, and um, and that that's really what inspired me to to explore silence and stillness. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, that's what you know got me into um, uh, interest in Quaker meeting. And I started my first Quaker meeting when I was in college at the University of California at Santa Cruz. And I love the silence so much that I wanted to take it further. So, um, so I, I decided um, after a few years of doing um, meeting for worship, also referred to as waiting for waiting worship, um, I decided that I wanted to explore the silence. And, and so I, I actually went to India. And, um, and in India, I, I, I just spent a lot of uh, hours in, um, in silent meditation and did a number of, of retreats um, over there. But what I really wanted was to find the, um, that deep silence in, in my own tradition, which is the Christian tradition. And so um, I, I did find uh, 
the Benedictine monk Thomas Keating at uh, Snowmass uh, Snowmass Abbey, and when I met him, um, I I knew that I had come home, and this was um, when I first met him uh, was let's see what what year what was it was nineteen nineteen ninety was it nineteen ninety eight. I think it was 1998 uh, when I first met him. And the thing that he said to me, which which really changed the trajectory of of my life, is he said to me, uh, if you do 40 minutes of centering prayer every day, and if you do at least one 10-day retreat every year, in centering prayer, he said, you will make progress. And so I took that, I really took that as my marching orders. And because I was an athlete, I was, you know, a wrestler when I was in high school and I was a mountain climber. um, I I really took that as my marching orders and I, and I went about it in a very disciplined way. And I I rarely missed my 40 minutes a day. Um, And then as that, as that progressed over, you know, uh, some years, what really uh, brought the whole uh, thing together for me was I, was uh, assigned to a, a post as a pastor in a rural community. And so for the first time in my life, I, I felt like I just had a lot more time on my hands. There was a lot less pressure, a lot less commitments. So I increased my meditation time in centering prayer to at least two hours a day. And I did that for um, for two or three years. And that really um, brought the practice together to, for me, really brought it home so that, um, I, I don't know what the right terminology might be, but I, um, I, I became established. Maybe that's the best word. I became established in Centering Prayer uh, at that time. Um, so those are some of the, the, the pivotal uh, moments in, in my, my spiritual life. Yeah, let me just follow up from there because that's that sounds that's just remarkable. Because um, I don't think I've heard I've ever I haven't spoke personally to anybody that's done that much silence, even two hours a day. I mean, I've done that a couple of times ever, and it sounds like you did it consistently. And what about the ten day silent retreat? Did you actually take any of those? And if you have, what would that? What is that actually like? And how many times have you done that in your life? Um, so, uh, 10 day, yeah, 10 day centering prayer retreats. Um, I would say I've done at least 10. I I just did, you know, one every year and it was just part of my, I I would tell the the church that I was working for that, you know, I I need this time for continuing education and I would, you know, take the retreat. And that is actually one thing that I would, um, recommend maybe above anything else that I might say in this podcast to your, to your readers, to, to your listeners, and that is the power of of extended retreats. They that's really there's there's a reason why Thomas Keating was emphatic about that, um, because you can only go so far if you're doing this practice on a on a daily basis. During the retreat, um, especially by let's say if you're doing a ten day retreat, by day seven, you go to a very deep place that you may not even have thought you know was possible and it's because of the the consistent silence and on retreat it's usually you know i would i would meditate uh about three or four hours a day on Mm -hmm. on centering prayer retreats um in in the beginning and then as time went on i i would do more like four or five hours a day um but but i i think that's really the difference between the east and the west um the orthodox uh, tradition and the the protestant catholic traditions is is in the east they understand you know that that 
these people who practice Hezekiah, they understand that to really get somewhere with this silent prayer, you have to be devoted to it. You have to do at least a, a two or three hours a day. You know, that that's their understanding. And in the West, people just dabble usually. You know, they're just not serious about it. I mean, a violin player, if they're really serious about the violin, they're going to practice two or three t- hours a day at least. And so that, that's that's my critique of the West is, is that people are not serious enough about centering prayer. Um, and, and they really should take it more seriously, like, like our sisters and brothers in the East. No, I love that. And, you know, I've act, I, and yeah, this the last couple of months I ha- like, I have been doing more and I can, and I feel like I'm just scratching the surface. And so again, you're like the first person who's actually said what you just said uh, to me. So I, I, when you say getting somewhere, you know, I know it's hard to describe because I, people always want to know, what you're trying to get at when you do centering prayer. I mean, curious, like what, what, how do you answer that now having literally, I mean, I guess it's been thousands of hours that you've done in silence and sitting with our Lord. So like, what can you describe what it means to, when you hit certain depths, you have ways that you talk about that? Well, you know, it's funny. I I asked Thomas Keating, I said, so, so what changes after so many hours of of centering prayer? Because I mean, he's, he's, he's taken it far beyond me, you know? I mean, he's, I'm sure by the end of his life, he's done at least 10,000 hours. Um, And, you know, um, what he said to me is he said that life just becomes effortless. And I I think that's like, that's a good, good, that's, that's kind of a good way of seeing it is that there's no longer any resistance. So, so there's no longer any tension and the nervous system has healed itself. And so life becomes, becomes fluid and becomes joyous and there's no longer any like hand wringing and, and, you know, and I also, one of the things I really love that Thomas Keating used to say, he said, you know, you're making a progress in centering prayer when the people who used to just drive you all the way up the wall, they only drive you halfway up the wall now. And, and that's, that's big progress. You know, I, I, I always, that. I always love, you know, he was a masterful teacher. Um, but, um, but that's, you know, that's what, what happens uh, for me is, is, well, I've also come to realize that for me, there's, there's ultimately two states of consciousness. There's what we call the absolute um, and the relative. Now, absolute has some negative connotations, you know, when it comes to, you know, the way that word has been used, but, but what I, how I use it is, is just the, um, well, well, before I go there though, um, so, so, so the relative is, is rooted in the senses. It's based in the senses and, and because it's based in the senses, re- relative consciousness always has a, somewhat of a, an unsavory, uh, feel to it because the, you know, that cotton candy that I'm eating now in about a minute, it's going to be gone. And so I, I experience satisfaction in my senses when I'm eating that cotton candy. But then when it's all done, I, I feel a sense of deprivation. And so there's, there's a sense of happiness when it's there and there's a sadness when it's gone. And that's how all sensory experience is. It's, it's, it's ephemeral. It's fleeting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not satisfactory because it, it has this, um, this quality to it, which, which is, um, you, you know, just uh, transient. But what happens after, um, you know, centering prayer, especially if you dedicate to yourself to it for years, is that you start to train what the, what the Orthodox uh, Church, the Eastern Church, refers to as the intuitive faculties. Uh, 
And the intuitive faculties are not tied to the senses. And so, so there is this world that is of the senses, but then there is this other world that is not of the senses. And because this other world is not of the senses, it is, it is also not ephemeral, like, like the sensate world. It is, um, you know, it is something that is everlasting. And, and that's, you know, when people uh, tap into that, they, they use words like the mind of Christ or the, the kingdom of heaven or, um, you, you know, this uh, eternal, uh, the, the, you know, those kinds of words. And, and you can also use, as many traditions do use, the, the absolute, meaning that it is the ground of, of all consciousness. It, it's the root. Um, and and when, there's, when there's ultimate rest and, and all the sense faculties are at rest, there's also profound peace and there's profound rest. And it's so deep, it's such a deep peace, it's, it's so deeply restful that it's, it's more, you have more rest than you would if, if you were sleeping. And so then what happens is that the body um, begins to have what the Centering Prayer community refers to as unloading. So, so wherever you hold tension in your body, wherever, you know, the perceived traumas of your life, because all, all children have garden variety traumas of rejection and, and, you know, getting lost uh, at, at the amusement park and all the various things that go on. And so there's trauma that we record in, a, in the muscle tension in our body and um, in our nervous system. So when we get to a really deep place with, uh, with, with centering prayer, like on a 10 day retreat, perhaps. Um, some of that tension is going to uh, is going to dissipate, and and right before it dissipates, it's it feels like vomiting, and and it feels very uncomfortable. But once once you let go of that tension in your body, there's this sense of release, and sometimes even exhilaration, and and then there's just this peace, and, and it's um, you know it, like like all mystics have talked about, it's just you know it's very hard to express. Um, you know, this kind of stuff. But, um, but, but that's, you know, that, that to me is what it's really about is, is, um, is healing the nervous system and uh, reducing all the tension uh, in your body. Uh, you know, one, and I'll just end with this little caveat that, that is one of those stories that stayed with me is I was talking to this uh, massage therapist one time and he said he had, he had the good fortune of, of going to Plum Village where Thich Nhat Hanh was. And, um, and he offered Thich Nhat Hanh a massage because that's what he does. He's a massage therapist and he thought he could offer that. And usually Thich Nhat Hanh has always said no, but for, for some reason uh, this time he said, okay, you know, sure, why not? And so um, this massage therapist massaged Thich Nhat Hanh and he said it blew his mind. It, it, it just changed the paradigm of what is possible because Thich Nhat Hanh was loose as a goose. There was not any tension anywhere in his body, anywhere. And every single person he's massaged up to that point, there was always tension in the body, but not with Thich Nhat Hanh. He was, he was just, he had done so much silent uh, meditation that, that, you know, his, his nervous system was entirely healed. And, um, and, and, you know, and like, like people like, like uh, Thomas Keating also, you know, people who have done that, they just uh, exude, they just have so much energy. And uh, I mean, Thomas Keating was jet setting around Europe in his 90s, like a rock star, you know, and, and it's because he had, he had um, you know, healed his, his, um, his body and, and there, was, there was so much uh, energy that he had that was released as a result of that. So anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll end with that.
No, that was fantastic. I say, um, I think I've been waiting to talk to you my whole life now here. That was probably the most profound 10, five or 10 minutes I think I've ever heard. And, and I can sense that that's where this whole thing's going for me. Cause I think I've tasted it, but I mean, obviously I'm not even close to what you just said, but I, that was remarkable. And I just want to thank you for connecting the spiritual to the physical, to the emotional, which seems to be, um, I mean, I think that's the message that's needed right now in our, in our world. And it, and is, you know, you use, I know your website and even some of the subtitles of your book, you have the idea of recovering Christianity's mystic roots. Is that what you're getting at? Or is there even more than what you just said? And, you know, could you fill us in a little bit about um, th that phrase, recovering Christianity's mystic roots? Well, Brian, let, let's just start, though, with, with the COVID. You know, th this is a very unique time. Yes. Because as as you said at one point, I don't know if it was before the interview or after, but um, you said something about how during COVID we all just became monks. Yeah. We were almost forced to become monks, right? And so, so we do live in a time which is unique. It's unlike any other time. And we can go deeper into centering prayer and, and practices like that um, now, perhaps, uh, you know, more so than ever before, because we have this... Um, you know, you know, most workplaces now you you can take your laptop home and you can work from home and 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 there's just more latitude. You can you know you can have this this time dedicated to silence, but but it does have to become a, a discipline, you know, and it has to be the same place every day, and it has to be the same time every day. And it has to be something that's that's becomes as familiar as brushing teeth. It has to become a habit. Mm -hmm. It can't just be something you mess around with, or, or it's just not going to go anywhere. But but you asked, so you asked this um, this question though about uh, recovering Christianity's mystic roots. What do I what do I mean by that? So my first book was really about cover, recovering the theology of um, those who practice Hezekiah, those who practice silent uh, silence and stillness, and that. That theology is a non-dual theology, and that's it. That's in my first book, uh, "Healing the Divide," um, and it's it's just recovering the non-dual uh, theology of the Eastern Church, um, especially the Oriental Orthodox Church. And there's a particular word that I use in that first book, "myophysi," which um, which means one united nature. Right. So yeah. so there's there's no division in, in Christ. Um, you know, there there is no uh, division between absolute and relative. There's no division between divine and human, creator and creature, um, eternal and uh, and ephemeral. All those things have become a unity um, in him. And and so as we go deeper in our own journey, we begin to uh, reflect that unity that that he uh is, is so superbly uh, embodies, and so and so that's the you know recovering Christianity's mystic roots. The the, the first uh, root for me to recover was the theology of uh, the mystical theology. Then the the second book is just about reading uh, scripture with with a mystical approach in a non dual uh, you know approach. Um, and and then my my third book is uh, is looking at a community, which I think um, is is really able to embody 
this this mysticism because it it has always since its inception valued a holistic uh, worldview. Um, it's always valued silence. It's always valued strong female leaders. Um, it's always valued people who have families, who have small businesses. It's just very well-rounded. You know, a lot of mystics that they, you know, they're just a little bit on the fringes of society. They're, um, they're maybe somewhat separated from, from normal everyday life. Um, but what I love about the Quakers is that they're just very grounded in the nitty gritty of, of gardens and, and businesses and, um, and learning a trade and, and being a good father and, and all those, you know, all those kinds of things. So, um, so I, that's, that's why I resonate with the Quakers. And that's, and that's the, really the essence of the third book is, is a community that, that can embody, um, you know, a, a, a holistic integrated uh, mysticism that that's not compartmentalized in some way. Um, so, so yeah, that's when I say, you know, recover Christianity's mystic roots. And then I always, when I talk about, you know, RCMR or recover Christianity mystic roots, I always talk about the five root concepts, which are um, new monasticism, centering prayer, Christian mysticism, Jesus paradox, and nonviolence. Because for me, those five key concepts, uh, they are the, the roots of Christian mysticism. Um, and and the, the root in the Bible, um, I always talk about uh, Matthew 6.6, 6, because it's very clear in, in, in that scripture that when Jesus says, you know, close the door and, and pray to your father who's in secret, and then your father will reward you. It's very clear for a number of reasons that I've written about that um, this was a metaphor for closing the door to the senses. So when mm. you close your eyes, you, you, you know, you, you don't take in any, any uh, noise, you, you know, you're, you're in a quiet place. When you just close off all the senses, um, you're able to commune with your father in a much deeper way uh, or commune with God, you know, in a much deeper way than you would be able to otherwise. Let me ask one follow up on the on the five areas that you covered. Again, we could talk about each one of those, but I know there's not going to be time. I, th- I think the one that wasn't complete wouldn't be at least obvious what you were getting at. What's the Jesus paradox? That might be helpful just to get a, some. If you can give a short definition, of what you mean by the Jesus paradox? Um, so most people in their theology, uh, Jesus and the Trinity are up there somewhere. Mm. Uh, inaccessible and we're down here somewhere you know with with all of our you know challenges and and brokenness and um and you know scars and so on um but what the jesus paradox uh, which is the the root theology of the eastern church um that that's how i see it uh, the root uh, you know, mystical theology of the Eastern church. And it was uh, rooted in, in the city of Alexandria in Egypt and, and the, the champions of, of the Jesus paradox, also known as myophysite um, were uh, the, uh, what I call the Alexandrian mystics. And that's um, Athanasius of, uh, of Alexandria and, um, and also Cyril of Alexandria, uh, Severus of Antioch, was was a champion of uh, of the Jesus paradox, and and it's really it, it's it's the the words that I used to describe because when you say myophysite, you know, people 
you know their eyes kind of glaze over but but they can relate to jesus paradox yeah. and so and so what it basically means is that that as it, you know that the jesus has uh fully unified within himself all of the the um you know the disparities of um of of existence and and when we begin to unify within ourselves those same disparities that then we begin to reflect that unity that he has so um there there's no longer uh, you know division between uh, the divinity that that's within us uh, the, the, i would say with a lowercase d and the humanity there's no longer a divinity a division between the the absolute or the eternal that we experience in centering prayer and the relative that we experience during our daily life there there's just more of a uh, of a deeply uh, rooted uh, integration and that's um you know that's that's the jesus paradox that jesus is at once god and human okay. that means that you can never separate separate out jesus's divinity and humanity Okay. Um, you know, some have tried to do that. They, they've said that, you know, there's the, the pre-resurrection Jesus and the post-resurrection Jesus, and he was more of like a human before the resurrection, and he was more divine with a capital D after the resurrection. But, but the, the Jesus paradox in the Eastern Church, um, you know, the Orientals, they won't have any of that. They, they say that if from the very beginning, that potential of full divinity was there. And then uh, even after the resurrection, his humanity was, was fully there. So there was never a division. It, it was it was always integrated. Um, and it, it's just our dualistic minds that, that like to divide everything. All right. That was, yeah, that was, okay. That, that was completely helpful. And I guess now that you said that it should have been obvious what you meant, but it wasn't. So thank you for clarifying uh, that. And can you say, um, for those, and I guess, you know, you may be the first person that identifies as a Quaker that I've ever spoken to. I, I think that's actually true, which that says more about me than, uh, than anything, but I'm guessing a lot of the audience might know the Quakers, um, at least even from American history, but can you talk about some of the practices that, so it, that would come out in your book that maybe other uh, persons in different denominations or approaches that w- might find helpful to integrate into the way that say a Methodist worships or such. So like what, what, what does the rest of the world need to learn from, from the Quakers about spirituality, would you say? Well, the, the, the Quakers have always been deeply rooted in scripture. Um, and if you look at one example, uh, you know, maybe Rufus Jones, um, he's, he's a well-known Quaker mystic, um, but he was, uh, you know, he grew up on a farm and uh, one of the conversion experience for him is there was a huge storm and the storm knocked down the barn. And, um, and, and he was, you know, as a child, he was just devastated. It was, it was the, one of the biggest shocks of his life ever. But what, what impressed him even more was within 48 hours, that community, which was mostly Quaker, um, and I believe this was in Pennsylvania, they, um, they all came together and, and they put up another barn. And, um, and, and he just realized that this, this is what Christianity really is all about. That this is this is the real deal, and um, and that's why he you know was was a Quaker his whole life and, and made many contributions. Um, uh, but but the the thing that fascinates me about the Quakers is if you look at their history, especially when it comes to social justice, when it comes to abolition, when it comes to women's right to vote, when it comes to treatment of the mentally ill, when it comes to uh, 
you know, prison reform. Uh, there is no other group in the United States that's had such extraordinary uh, effect as as the Quakers in in terms because they have relatively small numbers, yet they were able to accomplish all of this. And and so that's what's fascinating me about the Quakers. Um, and and for me, it's rooted in that in that reverence for silence, and 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 silent prayer that they also call uh, waiting worship. Um, that it's it's rooted in that, and and as you know, Quaker worship the way it goes is um, in the Friends General Conference um, is there are no ministers per se, but people wait in silence, and then when they feel inspired, they stand and they um, they speak their truth, um, usually briefly, but um, you know something that that really resonates for them, and they'll they'll share that with the meeting. Um, so. So that's, uh, you, you know, that's the, um, th that's the tradition. And, and, and they always, uh, you know, people who, uh, who write about Quakers, uh, uh, like Thomas R. Kelly, he, he has a, a famous quotation that um, the, the social gospel um, is, you know, we come to the social gospel through mystical experience. And so, so for him, you know, it's that ener that energizing experience of, of waiting worship when you really do feel connected to the Lord. It, it's that which inspires you to to take on some kind of social justice cause, um, because there's so much energy there that it has to go somewhere. And, and Thomas Keating would talk about that too. There's just there's so much energy that's awakened in centering prayer that it has to go somewhere. You have to do something with it. You can't just sit on it. So yeah, that's 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 profound. So talk. So for those who've never been to a Quaker worship service where you're waiting, like I mean, again, and you have your own experiences with your community. So I don't know how many different um, society of friends groups that you've worshipped with at some point. What, how long does a meeting last? And is like is is it literally just sitting in silence until someone's inspired, or is there songs? I mean, how, what does it actually look like for folks that might not know? A well, so FGC, which is Friends General Conference, and that's um, you, you know that that's the original uh, uh, way of of worshiping that um, that George and Margaret Fox, uh, you know, Margaret Fox was was George Fox's uh, wife, and they they um, were really the inspiration of, of Quakerism that started in England and then went to the United States. But um, they they said that it's not enough to just spout the scriptures. They said you have to connect with that spirit with a capital S that inspired the, the, the scriptures, that inspired the apostles. You have to connect with that spirit. Um, and of course, the scriptures are important, but probably even more important is to, uh, to connect to that lifeline, that, that energy, that, that source, which, um, which inspired the apostles and, and you know, the, the writers of scripture. And, and so that was, um, you, you know, that was the message. And so people wait uh, expectantly for one hour. Um, and it's usually, um, you know, Quakers uh, meeting houses have their one hour from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock. And, and, you know, usually there's kind of a settling period of maybe 10 to 15 minutes when people are kind of uh, adjusting their chairs and uh, taking their coats off and, you know, there's a little rustling in the purse and things like that. But, um, but eventually it, it, it gets settled. Um, and my, and my wife and I, the, the last uh, Quaker meeting we went to, 
the, both of us commented afterwards there there was a real deep sense of silence like a, like a gather what they call a gathered meeting and that's when there's there's a sense of shared silence and i really you know i i never really got this until somewhat recently just that there is a big difference between practicing silence and stillness in an individual basis um, and uh, practicing it collectively mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't happen every time but but when that happens it's it's a it's it feels like you're you're connecting with the sacred that you're you're part of something and um, it's beautiful love that so for for pastors or maybe even Sunday school teachers or, or just persons that have some level of um, Spirit, let's just say spiritual leadership, whether that is a, a real phrase or not, we can, that's another conversation. But uh, just thinking about persons that if, if like, how can you, um, how can such persons that want to guide other persons' souls and help them to grow in grace, um, how, how can you, how do you help people attend better to their own soul uh, so that they could then teach others to kind of do the, to be able to tend to their souls? Do you have advice for uh, pastors who might be listening right now, Amos? Um, yes, I, I would say that in, I would say this in, emphatically, I would say this definitively, I, I would say this as clearly as I possibly can, that you have to model it first. You know, you have you have to have a deep prayer life yourself, and and that's the starting place, because if you have that, it's authentic, and other people can. It's palpable; they can perceive it, and they're gonna they're gonna want to you know they're gonna want to have guidance from you. But but if if you're if you're not centered, and and if you're anxious. And if you're still holding on to, to you know, that, that, that tiff that happened, you know, that morning, you know, with, with your son or, or your daughter or whatever, it's, you know, it, it, that's just not the way. I mean, the way is, is for, for you to become totally, you know, as the Quakers would say, settled uh, within yourself. And then people can perceive that you're settled. They can perceive that you're relaxed that you're at peace, that you're open and that you're open to them, that, that, you know, you're not thinking about something else while they're talking, that you, you really can, you have that capacity to open yourself up to another person, um, to an experience. You have the capacity to be totally present in the moment because you have practiced that presence. So, so that to me is, is the core, you know, you, it's, uh, you, you've got to embody it. Um, and, and then people, just by almost like by osmosis who was it that i think it was emerson who who said uh you know um i can't hear what you're saying because who you are speaks so much more loudly you know something like that um and and i think there's so much truth to that so when you use the word settled just to kind of be clear because i'm that's a that's a new phrase for me it's it sounds like you're using it you can tell me, so is that sort of interchangeable with like a word being fully present? I heard you say present and even like what some people from other traditions might say, just being fully mindful. Are those all essentially adjectives or what distinction would you make between settled and present or settled and mindful? 
Uh, that's that's yeah, good question, Brian. Uh, so in in Orthodox tradition, in, in the tradition of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah can be can be translated as inner stillness, mm-hmm. right? Um, they they have this um, they have this analogy, they have this story that that to me is beautiful. It just it's always stayed in my mind. But if you take a glass of water and you pour some dirt into the into the water, and then you shake it up. And, and then you you put that glass on a on a counter. Um, all you're going to see is all this debris that's kind of moving around inside the water, and that's the nature of your mind. It, yeah. It's there's there's debris and it's it's just moving around like it always has. It's it's just all stirred up, right? But what happens if that if that water stays on that shelf long enough? It'll start to settle to the bottom of the glass. And then the water uh, becomes clear. And then you can actually, the the water, the glass becomes transparent. You can see through the glass. And that's the nature of a mind that is steeped in in stillness and silence is it becomes clear. It it doesn't have all the debris, you know, floating around. Um, And and so I I think when the Quakers uh, say the word settled, I don't know if that's really what they're they're you know talking about, but that's what comes to mind for me is 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 that mind that's you know that's settled and the the debris isn't stirring around anymore. I love that metaphor. That's that is so helpful. Um, to for me, a lot of a lot of spiritual formation, and I could be completely wrong on this, has to do with just having a profound sort of self-awareness and knowing yourself as a precursor, even knowing God. So, you know, a lot of times we're tempted to think, okay, I'm, I'm settled, but maybe I'm not. So how do you, how do you, since you've been doing this for a long time and you spent, spent a lot of time in silence, what's your advice to a younger person or in terms of experience in silence that we don't fool ourselves into thinking that we're more settled than we really are? Right, right. Well, well, I think that I think the point is not to be discouraged. Yeah, that's um, good. Because, uh, well, one one of my, you know, uh, there's another story that I love. Uh, one of my favorite stories is that um, th- that centering prayer is like training a puppy to sit in the middle of a circle. That's fun. <laughs> and if you've ever tried something like this, it it is so monotonous and 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 so tedious, because as soon as you bring the puppy gently back to the center of the circle, it wanders again, and so then you gently bring it back again, and then it wanders yet again. Then you gently bring it back, and it wanders. And there's a temptation actually to whack the puppy, but but you never whack the puppy. You you're always very gentle with the puppy, and and that's a phrase that Thomas Keating used all the time. It's ever so gently you bring your mind back to the center. So, so you bring that puppy back and, and what'll happen. I mean, most people will just quit because they they just become demoralized by it. It's just too tedious. They they can't stand it. Right. But if you hang in there long enough, what will happen is that puppy will actually, after you do this for maybe 20 minutes, um, it will actually sit in the center for a few seconds without moving. And it's a triumph. It's just a triumph. And if you and then if you do that again, day after day after day, you will eventually get up to that that puppy being in the center of the circle for maybe even a minute or two minutes. And and it's a beautiful thing because you finally feel like you have some kind of control over your mind, because I I forget who it was that said um, 
it's, I think it's, it's an East, Eastern Orthodox uh, saying, if we had as much control um, over uh, our legs as we have over our minds, we wouldn't be able to walk. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's so good. Well, I want to be mindful of time. We just have a couple of minutes left. So I want to go to hopefully some, some of the short questions I'd like to ask all my guests. First, your, your, your book, um, Journey of, The Journey of Holistic Mysticism, Experiencing the Integrated Spirituality of the Quakers. I'll have um, links and information in the show notes. It's coming out in mid-June. Um, where can folks find that? What's going to be the best way to purchase a copy? Um, you, you, can, uh, you can find that on, um, on Amazon. It'll be on Amazon. Um, and it, it'll also be, you know, in stores like, like Barnes and Noble. Um, and it, yeah, there'll be a, there'll be a Kindle version also. Um, but if you, you know, if you are interested in like, a I don't know, a signed copy, or if you, you're interested in, in uh, me maybe facilitating uh, a book study uh, in your faith community or something like that, just get a, get in touch with Brian and, uh, and Brian is in touch with me and, and um, you know, I can, I can mail you a, a signed copy or we can uh, figure out, you know, uh, sometimes for, for zoom or um, but, but yeah, uh, maybe start with Amazon. Yeah. Okay. And I'll have, I'll have links to your website. Yeah. And I'm happy to make connections. If anybody wants to reach out directly to me, deep dive spirituality at gmail.com. And I'll make sure Amos can get in touch with you on that. You've shared a lot about in general, your rhythms, especially this, these large blocks of centering prayer. What does a typical day look like for you? And you can kind of be as specific as you want. Like, how do you lay your day out? Maybe you, I, I would call it a rule of life. What does that look like for you on a, like a typical day, how you order your, the, the times you do centering prayer and maybe read scripture and things like that. What does, what does that look like for you? Well, up, up to very uh, recently, and I, I've, you know, I've tweaked it, you know, in, in the very recent past, just because of some, some big, you know, transitions uh, coming up, but, um, but up to, up to very recently, I was doing uh, 15 minutes before breakfast, 15 minutes before lunch and 15 minutes before dinner. Um, it, but that was after many years of doing centering prayer. So after you've done, uh, you know, two 20 minute sessions, which is what Keating. Okay, welcome to the end. Where is the best place to go online to find out more about you and the resources and training? Well, and, and, and one thing to be very clear um, <laughs> that, you know, to your, um, your listeners is there is a um, th there is a password to get into the site and it is simply friends and it's all lowercase just just the word friends so um, so yeah if you want to go into that website that's all you need to do okay well thank you and I want to thank you very much for your time this has been a really a profoundly helpful conversation I know I know for me I love listening to people that have been doing centering prayer for a long time because it encourages me and I know it's going to really encourage my listeners I want to appreciate I just want to thank you for the the real clarity and some of those illustrations fantastically helpful and really appreciate your time today Amos well thank you Brian and you know one one last thing I might say is you know Athanasius um, one time he uh, he was asked uh, how is Jesus equal to God and his his answer he said as sight is equal to the eyes wow that's good well again thank you for your time and uh, listeners thank you for hanging with us all the way to the end and until next time show up pay attention and know God's got way more invested in all of this than we do amen
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. If you found this episode helpful, would you please share it with friends through your social media networks, as well as leaving a review to help other people find it? If you're interested in any of the resources mentioned, please check out the show notes. And let me again remind you, if you're interested in contemplative practices, my latest book, Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence, Can Change Your Life, is now available in paperback or on Kindle. Recommend ordering it off of Amazon. If you want to do a large order, I would reach out directly to Paraclete Press. Ask for Sister Estelle, and you can get some deep discounts if you're interested in buying Say any quantity over of at least three or more copies, you can get good discounts directly from Paraclete. Thank you so much for the privilege of serving you, and we'll see you next time.